you will make your way to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 and verse 39, and we're going to consider the rest of this chapter together today in a message entitled, Amazed at Jesus. We get amazed at a lot of things in life, some that are not worthy of our amazement, uh, but there are various things that stir up our emotions and our affections and get us pretty excited about things that are happening around us. I read a story uh, in this season of giving about a commercial real estate company by the name of St. John Properties. And they flew all 198 employees to the company's headquarters in Baltimore for their annual party. Uh, The company told the employees that they were celebrating a big milestone, that they had developed 20 million square feet of retail space uh, in eight states. And some employees probably thought that they were going to get the perfunctory Christmas gift, maybe a box of jellies or some other type of small bonus that might go along with what uh, their job was. But the boss calls everybody into the room and he has envelopes for all of the individual employees. Incredibly, inside of these envelopes was $10 million worth of checks. Now you can do the math, that works out to about $50,000 of a Christmas bonus for every employee. Uh, Depending on their tenure, some of them received much larger bonuses than that. And as you might imagine, there was shock and a lot of amazement and excitement and tears and joy because of this huge bonus that they received at year end. And all employees everywhere said, amen. Now, I don't know if you're an employer or not, but um, whatever you do for your employees is going to have a hard time measuring up to that. You know, we're amazed at a lot of things and we celebrate a lot of things, but today and through this season and in our lives, we're celebrating the greatest gift that could possibly be celebrated in the Son of God who was sent to this earth for us. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes him as the indescribable gift to the point that human vocabulary has its limitations in terms of being able to fully explain the fullness of who he is. Musicians have composed some of the greatest music on this theme, Handel's Messiah, Bach's Christmas Oratorio, the beautiful hymns that we sing and celebrate, Joy to the World, a silent night, holy night, O little town of Bethlehem. Poets and sculptors and artists have taken up the tools of their trade to pay tribute to Jesus, the gift of God's love. Yet even these capture only a partial depiction of God's gift. They only give us some insight into who he is, but not the fullness of understanding of what God has done. We've already considered the theme of this book, Jesus Came to Seek and to Save. That's Luke's theme as he presents it to us. We've considered the messenger of Jesus, the forerunner in John the Baptist, who served as the voice, the one who was crying in the wilderness, but he was crying, make way the path of the Lord, here he comes. And we looked at his birth and what happened in the events surrounding his birth. And then we considered the main event, when God became flesh and dwelt among men in the birth of the Christ child. 
And then the praise that came from Mary as she exalted God and she lifted up praise for all that God was doing in her life through Jesus. And then the presentation at the temple when Jesus was brought, when it was time for him to be presented and Simeon takes Jesus up in his arms and praises God. Anna the prophetess thanks God and speaks to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem about the coming of Jesus. And that brings us to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. This is what the Word of God says. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Verse 41. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. This is a fascinating section of the scripture in that it provides for us the only reference in the Bible of the years between the birth of Jesus and the beginning of his public ministry as an adult somewhere around the age of 30. Charles Simeon said many years ago, there's little related of him referring to Jesus to gratify our curiosity, but enough to regulate our conduct. If we too are going to be amazed at Jesus, how then should we be amazed at Jesus? Well, first, we should be amazed at the character of Jesus. I want you to think for a moment, put yourself in the position of Mary and Joseph. You've been given the assignment of being the earthly parents of the Son of God. What a great responsibility they had before them. It must have been somewhat like putting a puzzle piece together, though, and they would get a piece here and there, and the puzzle would begin to take shape, but it was progressive. They did not have the finished picture on the box to be able to know what the finished puzzle was going to look like. God was giving them what they needed as they went, and they did not have the final arrangement of the life of Jesus 
yet fully in view. Chapter 2 and verse 19 says that Mary was pondering all of these things. She was treasuring all of these things in her heart, and she was meditating on them. Scripture says again in verse 51 that his mother kept all of these things in her heart. These verses imply that Mary meditated on all of the significance of who Jesus was as the Son of God. These verses also seem to imply that Mary herself was likely Luke's source, guided by the Holy Spirit for much of the information that is gathered in these first two chapters. After all, she was there. She was one of the main characters in the circumstance, and she's pondered this in her heart, and no doubt Luke has heard the message even from her. Now, verse 39 indicates that when they completed everything that was required by the law of the Lord, they went home to Nazareth. This is interesting here if you look at the parallel accounts of the birth of Jesus, particularly between Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. I think there is room left here, though it's an argument from silence, since it's not included explicitly in the narrative, for Matthew's account of the coming of the wise men, the flight to Egypt, the slaughter of the innocents, followed by the return of Joseph and Mary and their child from Egypt. But what we have here is a description of the boy Jesus. Notice again it says in verse 40 that the boy grew up and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's grace, God's favor was upon him. So Jesus grew up like an ordinary boy. He grew in his strength. He grew in his stature. He grew in the application of who he was and what he knew and what he had come to do. Human language has attempted for centuries to explain or to articulate the very identity of Jesus. If you think about all of the confessions that have been made down throughout history, the confessions of faith and, and the articulation of who human beings understand and explain Jesus to be, and it brings us back to the point that it's incredibly difficult from a human perspective to fully take into account all that he is in his character. There was a church council in Chalcedon in 451 AD. Some of the greatest theological minds of the time came together and they tried to describe Jesus. And here is their description. Perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly man of a reasonable, rational soul and body. Coessential with the Father according to the manhood. In all things like unto us without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter times for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary and the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, and the distinction of natures being by no means. An incredibly complex statement of human vocabulary attempting to describe the fullness of God becoming man. 
Jesus was born as a human being, yet he was fully God. Why is the humanity of Jesus essential theologically? Why is it essential for our understanding of his character? What does it tell us about the purpose for which Jesus came? Well, in part, only a human being could be born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So it was only a human who could satisfy being born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And though the law, as our tutor, our teacher, showed us our sinfulness and our inability to measure up to God, Jesus born under the law would perfectly fulfill the law of God and do what we could not do for us. And in part, only a human being could shed his blood for the remission of sins. This was the divine mandate. This is what God required for the redemption of humanity. And the Bible says in Hebrews 9 in verse 22 that Uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission for sin. Only a human being could relate to other human beings in the way that Jesus did. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 4 and verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So he came to do what we could not do. And only God, as man, fully God and fully man, could accomplish what was required for our redemption. And I say to you today, it is theologically essential that we believe that Jesus came as a human being. If we deny the humanity of Jesus, then we deny the character of Jesus. And the fact that he came to earth as he did is in fulfillment of the promise of God. And John wrote in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2 and 3, By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. But how could Jesus, who is the eternal God, come in the flesh, grow in wisdom? How could the one who was perfect and complete in his wisdom grow in his wisdom? What is the scripture indicating here at this point? Well, I think at least in part it's pointing us to the fact that In his deity, Jesus knew all things, but in his humanity, the application and the expression and the manifestation of that wisdom and his understanding of his divine calling and mission grew in how he demonstrated it in the world. There's often the question, it's been asked throughout the ages, there's actually been theological volumes that have been written on this, and people have argued at this point uh, many times uh, with different understandings of the outcome of what Jesus understood and when he understood it about his deity when he came to the earth. 
And let me give you what I believe is the answer. I believe because Jesus was not diminished in any way, nor did he surrender in any way his deity when he took on flesh, that the fullness of the Son of God was made manifest when he entered the world in that stable in Bethlehem. So I don't think that Jesus was any less when he was born. And I think when it's talking about Jesus growing in his wisdom, it's talking about the human side, which is in part part of this mystery that we see with God and man come together in one as 100% God and 100% man. And it's speaking to us in a human language, a human understanding of the application of Jesus' humanity in the world. And in his deity, Jesus knew all things, but in his humanity, Jesus grew in wisdom and understanding of his divine calling and his mission. Wisdom includes knowledge, but it's also the ability and the desire to use that to the fullest. And the Bible says that the grace or the favor of God was on him and guided his life step by step. We should be amazed at the character of Jesus. But second, we should be amazed at the understanding of Jesus. The Old Testament required every Jewish male to appear in worship before a holy God for three feasts each year. Uh, Those feasts were comprised of unleavened bread or the Passover feast, uh, the feast of weeks or Pentecost, and then also the feast of booths. By the time that uh, the days of Jesus came about, it was customary for those who lived a considerable distance away from Jerusalem or perhaps did not have the financial means to easily travel to Jerusalem to come for only one feast a year. We're not told here that Joseph and Mary only came for one, but we do know that they came for the Passover. So what they did was they left their home in Nazareth. It would have been about an 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And although they were coming from north to south, the language of the Scripture is always that people went up to Jerusalem. So it did not matter if you were coming from the north or the south or the east or the west. You were going up to Jerusalem. You are going up to Jerusalem because not only the geography, but also because Jerusalem represents the holy city of God. It represents the manifest presence of God in the Bible. And the people would go up and they were going up to worship. And that's exactly what Mary and Joseph did. And the incident happened when Jesus was 12 that we read about here in the scripture. Now, we don't know if this was Jesus' first journey there with them, but it must have been pretty exciting to leave an out-of-the-way place like Nazareth and travel to the capital for a celebration that would be with teeming thousands of people. It's said that there were as many as 200,000 people that would cram into the walled city of Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. And here's the boy, Jesus, in the city with his parents. And according to uh, the law, the feast would last seven days and we would presume that Joseph and Mary would stay for the entire thing and then leave after that time. And when it came time to leave, they joined that northbound caravan back toward Nazareth, their home. That was the general custom at that time that 
the women and the children would uh, travel out in the front, and the men and the young men would uh, travel behind. And either way, Jesus did not join the traveling party. He stays behind in Jerusalem, and at first his parents don't miss him. I mean, you're talking about uh, family groupings of people. You're talking about a number of people traveling together in this slow-moving caravan, and maybe dad thinks the boy is where mom knows where he is, and maybe mom thinks that dad knows where the boy is, and there's some confusion there, and it takes them a little while to recognize that he's in fact not with them. They don't at first recognize that he's missing. And when they got to a certain point in the journey toward home, his parents become concerned and they begin to look for him among their relatives and their friends. Now, if you've ever lost a child in a crowded place, you know the feeling that these parents would have experienced. At first, they began to look around and, well, where is he? They're looking, trying to recognize him. Is he in the midst of, of these other children? Is he in the midst of the caravan? Where is he? Where did he go? It's like if you're at that crowded ballpark or you're at the state fair or you're some other crowded place and you're looking around all the maze of the people that are moving and you're trying to identify your child and then it goes up a notch and you start calling their name. Where are you? And you start calling their name trying to find them and then you don't find them. And a sense of panic sets in. And then when the sense of panic sets in, you start scrambling to try to find where the child went. And it says after they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him. And after three days, they found him. I think that's one day out, one day back, and then the day that they actually found him. Now, there was ample space around the temple uh, for teaching It was in one of those areas that the teaching was going on that Mary and Joseph actually found Jesus sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and at times directing questions toward them. Remember, these were in the days of the celebratory feasts. So that means that there were some very prominent people that were there in Jerusalem. There would have been teachers there of the law that would have been very well respected and presumably some of them would have still been there teaching in the temple courts. And Jesus is in the midst and He's asking questions and making statements. This was not unusual in that type of a setting. That was the dialogue method that they would use where statements would be made and questions would be given and there would be an interchange of ideas. And evidently, both the questions and the answers revealed a high level of insight from Jesus to those who were listening and looking on. So just picture Jesus and in the midst of the people being taught. He's asking insightful questions. He's demonstrating understanding of the dialogue that's taking place. And he's evidently giving some brilliant answers. And verse 47 says, all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. Now the comprehension and interaction of a 12-year-old astonished these learned people who were in their midst. Joseph and Mary weren't too happy about what's taking place. The question is asked, why would you do this to us in this way? It's that moment when the panic about where your child is turns to anger because you found them and they weren't where you thought they were. And Jesus is 
continuing in this discussion, proposing questions, respecting the law and the prophets, and there's no reason to suppose that this is to perplex or to confound the people that he's interacting with. No doubt the questions were given in a respectable manner, and the answers were listened to with a proper deference for his age and his role at that time. He was a child. He hadn't been taught, nor would he in any type of sinfulness be rude or uncivil uh, in the discussion, but the depth of his participation was stunning. And if you think about the ability of those Jewish rabbis that would have been very experienced in what they knew, they would have been very capable, they would have had great insight for them to have been amazed at what he was saying, tells us something about the understanding of Jesus. There's an old oil painting called The Young Christ Teaching in the Temple. And that old oil painting depicts uh, Jesus in an exalted position, raised above the rest of the teachers, sitting on a chair that looks like some sort of a throne. And all the other teachers are kind of groveling before him as he prepares and gives a lecture. That's certainly not what was happening in this particular situation. Jesus was growing in his understanding of his role from his human side. And it would not be long before he was in that position of humility and listening and dialoguing to when he would be the teacher in their presence who was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes who were teaching them. You see, our understanding of what it means to have faith in God comes from the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the Son of God. Let me say it another way. The reason we know what we know and we understand what we understand about the understanding of Jesus is because God has made it known to us. That God has spoken forth through his creation, through his word, in various times and in various ways, but preeminently he has spoken forth to us through his son. And in this instance, Jesus was beginning to manifest his understanding of his role in what he had come to do, and he was dialoguing in a way that the people were amazed and astonished. And remember, according to verse 40, he was strong in the spirit. So even the Holy Spirit, as part of the triune Godhead, was directing him and was with him even in this moment. An understanding of Jesus is a noun that means comprehension, acuteness, and shrewdness with accuracy to an extraordinary level. We should be amazed at at the understanding of Jesus. But let's take it a step further. Third, we should be amazed at the obedience of Jesus. When Joseph and Mary found Jesus, he endured his normal parental scolding. Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And you would have thought that the miracle surrounding the birth of Jesus and then watching Jesus grow in wisdom and in stature would seemingly have prepared them for the identity that he had assumed that he was making manifest. And Jesus replies to them, why are you searching for me? 
Can you imagine the voice of a child? Can you imagine the, the 12-year-old Jesus like, what are y'all looking for me for? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Now, don't miss this point. Jesus, even at the age of 12, was deeply aware of the relationship between himself and his father in heaven. He was cognizant of the fact of his relationship with God the Father in heaven. Later on, he, he spoke of being sent by the Father whose will he always obeys. He spoke of being one with the Father. He spoke of committing his spirit to the Father. And he obeyed God the Father unquestionably according to his word without any change at all. And he said it was necessary. What he's saying is I had to be here. I must be here. And what he's given us insight into here is that the entire life of Jesus was directed by the divine. All of it. From the moment God the Father said to God the Son in heaven, it is time for you to enter into the world and to be born of a virgin. Jesus was one with the Father from eternity past, and now he's making manifest himself among people, and he says it is necessary that I be in my Father's house. In Luke's gospel, Jesus would later say, I must preach, I must suffer, I must go on my way, I must be delivered up and crucified and rise again, I must suffer these things and enter, enter into glory. So when he says, I must or I have to be, he means that's as good as done because if it is the will of the Father, he is going to be obedient to him, to him in all that he says. But the scripture says his parents did not understand what he said to them. It's important to note what Jesus did in response when they did not understand what he said to them. Don't miss it. He obeyed his parents unquestionably and went with them. He did what his mom and dad said. Why? Because Jesus did everything that he was supposed to do, and he always did it right. He was without sin. So not only did he obey his Father in heaven, but he obeyed the authority that he had been placed under on this earth in Mary and Joseph. And it reminds us, as an example, in the obedience of Jesus of how our desire should be uh, born out of the right motivations. That we should want to honor our Father in heaven who has created us and redeemed us and sustains us and will one day see us home to be with him safely in glory. And we should want to honor him in all that we do. And we should pray, God, if we are to be like Jesus, then we want to be like Jesus in our obedience. We want to do what he says. And we want to be conformed to his image. The Bible says in Romans 8 that it is God's will that you be conformed to the image of Jesus. And the only way you're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus as his disciple is if you learn to obey what he says to do. And when we follow the example of Jesus, our motivation ought to be right. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 and following says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You say, what are the right motivations for obeying God? First of all, understanding at a foundational level that your faith is about life with God. Do you know we confuse the Christian faith and we, we mix it up with a lot of different stuff that may or may not be consistent with what the Bible teaches? It is ultimately about knowing God and making him known. It is ultimately about loving God and loving people. Everything is wrapped up in that. And if my desire begins at that point that I have life with God through faith in Jesus, that's what drives me. So I should be motivated by that. I should be motivated by the gift of salvation that God has saved my wretched soul. That though there was nothing good in me, that though I could offer up nothing to God in terms of my righteousness, because my righteousness is as filthy rags, that though I was deserving of hell and I was deserving of eternal separation from God, that God sent his son to die in my place and to be raised from the dead and even now to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, and that God receives people like us into his eternal presence, that should be enough motivation from the gratitude of our hearts to say, I want to honor God. I want to obey him because he saved me. He rescued me. And in that, I desire to glorify God so that people would know that he is good and they would know that he is love and they would know that he is holy and they would know that he is salvation. And we desire to glorify him in all things. And then I think the fact that we're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how we've lived our lives should be some motivation for us. Now understand, we're not going to be judged for our sins if God judges for our sins a second time. That would negate the necessity of what Jesus came to do. If our sins have been laid on Christ and he has borne the wrath of God for us, in our place as our substitution. And when we receive that and are justified by grace through faith, then our sins are forgiven, but we'll still be held accountable for how we've lived our lives. The spiritual gifts that God has given us, the resources God has entrusted to us, the opportunities that we have had to make him known and to proclaim the good news of Jesus, how we've stewarded the life that God has entrusted to us, all of these things will be brought to account at the Bema judgment seat of Christ. And we don't want to be ashamed when we stand before the Lord. We want to have been obedient and said, Lord, just use me however you see fit. Because all I have is you and all I need is you we ought to be amazed at the obedience of Jesus but it should compel us to our own obedience look again with me at verse 52 now I'm going to come toward a close 
It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Now I want to to draw a parallel here in closing between our lives and the life of Jesus. I already referenced that Romans 8 passage earlier that it's God's will that you be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's true. So if that is true, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with people, would it not follow that in our lives we should be increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people? Would we not desire that our Father would look down from heaven and he would say, that's my son, and I am pleased. That's my daughter, and I am pleased. In Christ, these things can be true. That's my child, and I'm pleased by how they're living their life because they're honoring the one and only Son of God who came in the flesh. And we should be growing in that more and more that our lives are reflecting who Jesus is. That should be the trajectory of every single disciple. As children of God, that we grow in favor with God and with people. So let me just ask you this question. How are you being a blessing to other people? When people see you coming, do they think, that's value added. They're going to encourage me. They're going to help me. They're going to bless me. They're going to encourage me and pray for me. They're going to challenge me. Or do people see you coming and think, oh, no. Oh, no. Our lives should be increasing in blessing to other people. Did you know that's a simple way to give to other people? You have to give them something that's tangible, but you can give them the love of God that is eternal and serve them through the Spirit of God and the Son of God, and He'll be praised and honored. Let's bow our heads together as we pray for just a moment. Father, as we bow before you now in these moments, we just want to pause and say thank you for the example of Jesus who came and lived and died and now lives again. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for hope. We thank you for eternal life. And I pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of Jesus in our example of being obedient like Jesus. And that we would grow in favor with you and with people. In fact, Lord, just help us this week to to think about every person that we encounter. How can we be a blessing? How can we be a help? How can we be the hands and the feet of Jesus in their life? And I pray you would put before us some of those divine appointments for people that don't yet know you, to hear the good news, to know that Jesus came to seek and to save, and to hear about the greatest gift of all. So, Father, we bless you, we honor you, we lift up Jesus, and we pray it in his name. Amen.